Tonight, if you could turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. Really excited to be able to preach. It's always a pleasure um, to uh, share the pulpit with uh, my pastor. Um, just a wonderful place to be. And I just want to encourage you all, um, as you're turning there, you know, prayer changes things. I know we just talked about this, but prayer changes things. And I want to encourage you guys to remember that we have something to do as Christians. And I know sometimes it's hard when we get involved and we, we get so used to coming to church and it gets so common. You know, it just it turns into sometimes a religious exercise where we come on Sunday or Thursday. We say a few prayers at home from time to time. And we forget how critical the battle that we fight is. Um, I, I, I say this from time to time when I get up here because um, my fear is that this church is established. And I see sometimes in established churches um, a growing lack of urgency because we see the buildings and the walls and the heat comes on and you know people are coming. It doesn't really seem like there's anything left to build. Um, and that is a wicked, demonic thought. This church will die with a thought, a thought like that. I want you to know how urgent it is to continue to build the church. It's so urgent. We have family. One thing I like about this prayer room is we already have this huge like um, piece of um, paper that's, that's tacked up against the wall. And on this piece of paper are names of people that are unsaved, their family, or friends. And it's filled with names of people that aren't saved. And I think sometimes we forget that we hold the gospel that will save these people. And that we can't be ashamed to proclaim that gospel to them. They will enter into a Christless eternity forever and ever and ever. The book of Revelation describes hell as a place of torment without end. The gospel can save our friends and family. This church isn't being done built, church. And we've got to continue to build it. We've got to continue to take the gospel and not waste time on silly, stupid activities. Get off of Facebook and witness the gospel. And I say that to myself, too. Turn the television off and witness the gospel. Don't be ashamed. It is so urgent that we build this church and continue to take that call seriously. That's not even my message, but I, I, wanted, I wanted to encourage you guys with that, um, to remember that that's our job. But we, we are talking about salvation tonight. Salvation, um, basically, is the deliverance from the terrible wrath of God because of sin. Salvation is not deliverance from Satan. Salvation isn't even deliverance from the negative consequences of our sin. Salvation is deliverance from the terrible wrath of God directed at us because of sin. That's what salvation is. And for almost a year, we've been discussing at our youth group on Tuesday nights, who is Christ and what is salvation? Two very um, basic, fundamental questions of the Christian faith. Uh, Dr. Chafer, for those of you who are, who are familiar with him, said that there are two critical doctrines to establish early on in the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of Christ. And I agree with him, and I take that seriously, that we need to develop a very good Christology. We have to know who Jesus is and what he came to do. And what he came to do leads us into salvation. What is salvation? Why are we saved? How are we saved? For what purpose are we saved? See, these are the questions that we've sought to answer for the past year. It's been a lot of fun. And I, I, I don't know that the kids would agree, but I've had a lot of fun doing it. 
And um, it's really just been an amazing time. And recently, we've been talking about the application of salvation. In other words, what is the transition from the unsaved person to the saved person? What's the transition that you go through where all of a sudden you were unsaved, but now you're saved? And we talked about four things. That God calls, convicts, regenerates, and produces faith. And through those four things, salvation is produced in a person's life. Does that make sense? And I can't go through all that. That's not the nature of my message tonight. But God calls us with the gospel, convicts us that the gospel is true in John 16, regenerates us in Titus 3, 5, so that we, were, that we, are, that we are able to believe it in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Make sense? So the application of salvation includes God's calling, conviction, regeneration, and the gift of faith. But what I want to talk about tonight, I think, is a very critical and a very important question to answer for all of us. Once we have received salvation, can that salvation be lost? Once we have received salvation, can that salvation be lost? And this is what I would like to discuss tonight. If we lose the deli ticket, are we next in line? (laughs) You know, oftentimes we think in terms of this, like, do I need to hold on to my salvation because somehow it might disappear? Can our enemies steal it from us? Can someone take it from us? Can God take it back from us because of our sin? Good questions, right? And if not, then what's to keep us from the attitude of saying, well, I'm just going to sin. Hey, my salvation is secure. So these are very, very important questions. And you know, when I was a boy, I remember being concerned about this question too. I remember Pastor Martel preaching messages on how to be saved. Saying things like, what would you say to God if you died and went to, hev- went to heaven? What would... What would be the answer that would um, grant you access into his presence? And then he would give the gospel about salvation through Christ. But as a boy, I was really concerned. Like, what if I forget all this? So I actually remember when I was small, I wrote this down on a little piece of notepad, probably with a crayon. Um, I wrote this down on a little piece of notepad. That way, I put it in my pocket. And everywhere I went, I took this little piece of paper with me. Because if I died, I wanted to make sure that I said the right thing at the pearly gates. Because I wanted to go to heaven. I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't really get it just yet. You know, so I think we're concerned about this, this question, though. It's a kind of a, a silly illustration, but it's an important point because many people, I think, want to know if, when they die, are they going to heaven. You know, and it's interesting because I find that most people that you meet, okay, that believe in heaven, and will you agree with me on this one, but most people that you meet that believe in heaven think they're going there. Right? Amen? I mean, who believes in heaven and says, nah, I'm not going there, I'm going to hell? I mean, there are some people that are a little, you know, a little weird that might, that might say, that, you know, I believe in heaven and hell and I'm definitely going to hell. And, you know, maybe like they're just kind of fooling around with you or teasing you. Maybe they don't actually believe in heaven and hell. But people who are serious in engaging you in this discussion, nine times out of ten, yeah, I'm going to heaven, or purgatory, but eventually I'll be in heaven, I'll make it one day. So we all have this assurance, maybe sometimes, and maybe most of the time, false assurance that we are going to heaven. But what is it actually that makes us go to heaven? And if, if we get the salvation, this actual salvation, this real salvation, is it kept? Is it preserved? And that's the question I would like to go through with you tonight. Once I am saved, am I forever saved? So John chapter 10 is where I ask you to, um, to turn John chapter 10, verses 22 
through 30. It says this, at the time of the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because, now this is important, you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And listen to what he gives them. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's bow our heads and pray, please. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. It is sharp. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. I pray, Lord, that tonight... Um, your Word, as we investigate Your Word, that Your Word would investigate us. Lord, that we would understand it clearly and apply it to our lives. That we would recognize that these aren't just ideas on a page, but these are living, breathing principles of life that give us new life in Christ and eternal life. God, we thank You that in Christ we have the promise of an inheritance in heaven kept by your sovereign power. In the name of our precious Savior, we pray. Amen. A few things I want to do for you tonight. I just kind of want to um, give a quick summary of everything that we're going to do tonight, and then we'll just get the ball rolling. The first thing I want to do is I want to define some terms for you guys. Okay, so that's the first thing I want to do. The second thing I want to do is I want to explain to you what is the difference between the Calvinistic and the Arminian view of security. Okay? The Calvinists, you say, whoa, I'm already, you're already blowing my mind. Well, good. I like to blow mine. Um, but I want to explain to you the difference between the Calvinistic and Arminian view of security. The third thing I want to do is to give you some reasons why I believe that believers, real believers, genuine believers, are secure and persevere. And finally, I want to go over um, <clears throat> what can give you an assurance of salvation. Okay? So the first thing <clears throat> is some definitions. There are some terms I'm going to use tonight that unless, um, unless I explain them to you, you might get a little lost if you've never heard these terms before. So let me just explain to you what I mean by these words, just so that as we go along, you're able to follow me. I don't want anyone confused. I don't like seeing tilted heads, you know. So um, a defi- some definitions here. The word perseverance emphasizes the work of God in preserving the believer in, he- in his salvation or her salvation. Excuse me, ladies. It emphasizes the work of God in preserving the believer in salvation. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 12, I believe it is, says that the believer can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. You say, oh, that's good for the Westminster Confession, but what's the Bible say? We're going to get into that, but I just want to establish for you what I mean by these words first, Okay. The second word that we want to look at is security, okay? The word security. Sometimes when referring to this doctrine, people will use these words interchangeably, but they really kind of refer to the same thing. Security is the work of God guaranteeing 
that the gift of God, the gift of salvation, once received, is forever and cannot be lost. Does that make sense? So the gift of salvation, once received by the individual, is forever and cannot be lost. That's what I mean by security. Finally is the word assurance. Now, assurance is a little bit different from the idea. It's connected, but it's a little bit different from the idea of security. It is the realization that one possesses eternal life. So in other words, according to John, I write these things so that you might know that you have eternal life. So how are we to know that we have salvation once we have it? What are the signs? Uh, Is there anything produced in our life? What's the indication that real salvation has occurred so that we wouldn't have a false assurance? You see, because many people, like I said before, believe that they're going to heaven but are not going to heaven. They have a false assurance of their own salvation. So what gives us a real assurance of our salvation? How can we be assured that salvation actually belongs to us? Does this make sense? Okay. Everyone with me? So I, I hope everyone's with me so far. If anyone's confused, just raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But you can talk to me afterwards. That would be fine. Okay, so <clears throat> one can be saved and secure and doubt the reality of their salvation. One can be saved and secure and doubt the reality of their salvation. In other words, they can doubt whether or not they actually have salvation when they are saved, and I think for a number of different reasons, which we'll get into. But security, um, just for now, security teaches that once a believer is saved, he is always saved, while assurance is the personal confidence that an individual is saved. Okay? Follow me? All right, good. Some of us might lack assurance for a number of different reasons. Okay? Um, maybe we can't point to the date and time of our conversion experience. So we're looking for some, like, moment in our history as a Christian where, like, we just we dropped to our knees and started bawling and angels surrounded us or some kind of conversion experience. And we can't really have, we don't really have the date. You know, some people have that moment, and it's very clear and it's very defined. Other people, however, it seemed like it was more of, like, a process where, at the beginning, they, you know, they were completely hostile to Christianity, didn't believe it at all, and it seemed like there was like this transition um, into the faith. So they wonder, I lacked some experience of like emotional types of um, things happening to me, so am I saved? So we start to doubt our salvation because of different things like this. <clears throat> you may also question the correctness of the procedure you went through. Was kind of like me as a little boy. Did I pray the right prayer? Was I supposed to raise my hands in church? Was I supposed to come forward? We start thinking that things like that, um, uh, these works-based things are what actually saves us. But those things don't save us. But we we start to think that sometimes that, you know, the correctness of the procedure that we went through, you know, maybe sometimes these can give us a lack of assurance. Now, these these are a little bit more pertinent to our discussion tonight. If you do not believe in the perseverance of the saints, then you will lack assurance from time to time. And what I, mean, what I mean by this is if you believe that you can lose your salvation, then from time to time, wouldn't it follow that you will think that you've lost it? So you lack assurance of salvation because maybe you sinned or maybe, you know, um, you said a swear on the way to church. And because you have an extreme view of, of this idea of, of perseverance, or a lack, idea, a lack of an idea of perseverance, you think that because you sinned today that now you're separated from God and you've lost your assurance of uh, salvation. Um, 
So an extreme, also an extreme view of perseverance may rob your assurance. Wonder if, wondering if you were ever saved because you've sinned. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. There are two extremes. Let me just explain this really quick. There are two extremes that you can fall into when discussing the question of assurance and perseverance. Okay? One is that if you believe that you can lose your salvation because of sin, then you will lose your assurance of salvation when you sin. Right? The other is if you believe that part of the indication that salvation has occurred is a holy lifestyle, and then you sin, you believe that salvation never occurs. You follow me? So, a Calvinist and an Arminian share something in common. They believe that perseverance and holiness is what gives a person assurance. Okay? The difference, though, is that an Arminian believes that you can get saved in sin and lose the salvation. A Calvinist will say that you can get saved, that you, um, if you, if you have this prolonged period of sin in your life, then it's an indication that you were never saved to begin with. You follow me? So they both look inward to the way that you're behaving as part of the assurance of salvation. Now, the reason I bring this up is to, to, um, while I agree, with that there are fruits of righteousness in a person's life, I think you have to proceed with caution. And what I mean by that is that the Bible is very clear that Christians sin. So the Calvinistic idea of perseverance does not mean that you won't sin from time to time. It does mean, however, that you won't completely and finally fall away from Christ in life. You see the difference? So, and, and we'll get to that more in a second, but just kind of like put that in your pocket. We're going to take it out again later, okay? So you shouldn't doubt salvation because you sin if that sin is accompanied by grief and sorrow and conviction, okay? First John 2, 1, Christ is our advocate for those of us who sin, okay? You should doubt salvation, however, if you have no faith or conviction over sin. So you, you have faith once in Christ, and now you don't. You should doubt salvation at that point. Or if, you, or if you're living your Christian life in continued sin without any conviction at all. You see, conviction is the key word, I think. Conviction is the key word. I'm going to get to it just a little bit more in a moment. Okay. Now, I said to you I want to go over some differences. I've already done this somewhat of, of the Arminian and the Calvinistic view of this important issue of security or perseverance. Now, this handsome guy to my left, oh, I guess to my right as well, um, is Jacobus Arminius. He lived in between 1560 and 1609. He came to uh, disagree with some of the teachings of John Calvin, okay? And by the way, this debate continues to this day, okay? It didn't die with him. It continues on and on. It probably will forever continue on. But this is a continued debate today. But Jacobus Arminius was raised as a Calvinist, and he began to disagree with uh, many points that Calvinism teaches, two in particular that I want to bring out tonight, was he taught, number one, that Christian perfection is possible. Wow, that's stressful, isn't it? <laughs> Man, I have missed the boat somewhere. Um, but Christian perfection is possible. What that means is that you as a believer can come to the point in your life as you grow in your faith where you don't sin anymore. Wow, thank God. I remember I, I heard a story about a guy I forget the, the details of the story, but a guy who taught this in a seminary, he was a professor in a seminary, he taught this, and he actually believed, he actually had the audacity to say 
that I believe that I've reached this place in my life. Right? So what one of the students, what one of the students did, um, during, now this wasn't right, but it was funny. Um, he walked by during lunchtime or during like some, some period or something where they all were eating in the cafeteria. He, he walks by with his tray and purposely trips and dumps all his food all over the guy. The guy gets up and he's like, what the heck is the matter? He starts screaming at him. He flips out. And uh, it's just like to show, to prove to everyone that this guy still has the same nature. But um, anyway, Christian perfection is possible according to the system um, of thought. Number two, a believer, once saved, can lose his salvation. Now, these are going to connect um, well, I think, in a moment. Now, by the way, just a, you know, a little history lesson. I like, I like history sometimes if it's not too long and boring. Um, Jacobus Arminius um, influenced, as you know, as some of you may know, this man, John Wesley, who, exi- who lived in 17, the 1700s. Um, contemporary, contemporaries of John, John Wesley were, of course, his brother Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. Okay? By the way, I, I visited George Whitfield's grave. Um, it's in Mass- northern Massachusetts, and they actually have uh, a casting of his skull. <laughs> Pretty uh, scary thing. We went down in the basement is where they have the, his tomb is actually under um, the pulpit of a church that he founded um, in Massachusetts. So you go in the basement to see this tomb, and you walk in and you see, you see this hole, like it's this archway, this hole, very small archway. And um, inside this archway is this skull looking at you. It's a little bit intimidating. I don't know why they did that. By the way, um, if you ever go to Chicago, um, visit Moody Bible Institute because it will freak you out. Um, they have a museum um, dedicated to D.L. Moody at Moody Bible Institute. And I, I was walking through this museum. I'm like, oh, it's really cool. They have like all these different things, his Bible and the notes in it and stuff. And you're walking around. Finally, at the end of this museum, there is, um, there's a, a casting of his head. It's not even a skull. It's his, it's his dead head. That they, they made a casting of his dead head and his dead hands. And it's in this like little display. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. Back then, they liked to display dead things. Um, not really my style. Uh, I think, you know, recently we bronze shoes. That's a little better. Anyway, so John Wesley was influenced by the, um, of course, the teachings of Jacobus Arminius. And John Wesley, in case you didn't know, I think it's very important to, to when we look around the world we live in, all right, there are things that we, we make observations, different denominations, different kinds of church, different styles of church. I always think that it's very important to know how did these things come to be. John Wesley founded the Methodist Church, okay, um, along with Charles, Charles Wesley. These teachings affected what was called the holiness movement in the early 1900s, late 1800s, which was actually the, the beginning stages of the modern Pentecostal movement. Okay, now I'm not saying that to criticize anybody or anything. Um, I criticize no one. Um, <laughs> but, um, but this is just to show you where things today come from. Where did the Pentecostal church come from? Um, the ideas in not every Pentecostal church, but much of the Pentecostal theology that we see was um, highly influenced by Jacobus Arminius uh, and John Wesley, and it's developed into what we see today. Okay? So that's the end of the history lesson. What time is it? Okay, I got some time. Okay, so the Arminians believe that Christian perfection is possible. Let me just go back here. That Christian perfection is possible, and a believer, once saved, can lose his salvation. In the Arminian system, what they believe is that by our free will, 
We either choose to believe or to reject the gospel. So we in our free agency have the ability to say yes or no to the gospel. And by that free will, we believe and are saved and should live a life of holiness leading to perfection. Okay? So this is the progress of spirituality for an Arminian. If with that same will, we go apostate, in other words, we don't believe in Jesus anymore, and we say, we say something like, well, I did believe in Jesus back in the 80s, but I'm a Buddhist now. Okay? If we do that, that's what I mean by apostate, if we do that, they'll, they'll say that you have lost your salvation because you have freely chose to reject the salvation that you once accepted. Okay? Make sense so far? So the Arminian believes that a person can be saved, but if he does, if he does not persevere in holiness or faith, that salvation will be lost. The Calvinist, however, would say that if a person does not persevere in faith and holiness, they never had salvation. You see the difference? Now, you, you might be asking a question that I think, you know, the question that immediately popped into my mind is, I have to persevere in holiness to be saved? In other words, that, in other, in other words that's a sign that salvation happened in my life? Yeah, it is. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we lack sin. That doesn't mean that we never sin again. But the Christian life is marked by a change. A salvation life that is produced in us by the new birth. And if that never occurs, then you have never been saved. It's very simple. Now, we got to be careful in judging people because people are at different levels and different stages of their own spiritual progress. Sometimes a new believer will be still struggling with this area of sin but have conquered this area of sin and it's still a process for them. So we can't go, we can't go around like, you know, um, holy rangers deciding who is saved in the room and who's not saved in the room. Okay? I do think that there is some precedence um, for challenging a person's salvation. But we do have to be careful not to be quick to judge just because someone's struggling with a sin. And we'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so the difference here is that Arminians believe that you can lose your salvation because of a lack of perseverance. Calvinists say you never had salvation if you lack perseverance. Okay? So that is the difference. Now, what are some of the reasons, the biblical reasons, for the security of the believer? This is all well and good. Nice history lesson. Nice. You gave us some definitions of some theological words. But can you show me in Scripture why we are secure? Why is it, you know, how is it in the Bible? Where does the Bible teach that we cannot, indeed, if we actually are saved, that that salvation is secure and that we will persevere? Okay? In other words, we cannot lose our salvation. I want to go over um, something that I have to state immediately before we even get into this. Eternal life or the security of the believer is only for true believers. Okay? It's kind of self-explanatory, but I felt it necessary to say. Um, there are those who profess eternal life and profess faith, but according to the book of James, they have no faith. Their faith is the faith of demons because it's incomplete and insincere. And that faith gives them a false assurance of a salvation that they never had. Okay? So let me just state right at the beginning that those people, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who have a genuine faith, a genuine saving faith, and are actually saved, okay? Because the Bible references many times that there is a group of people who profess faith and think they're saved but are not, 
Okay, I'm not referring to this group of people. I'm referring to the truly regenerate. And I believe that they are secure for the following reasons. Reasons related to the Father and His purpose. Okay, let me just skip a couple things here. Reasons related to the Father and His purpose. My uh, clicker is getting a little... It's not working. Oh, here we go. Okay. We are secure for reasons related to the Father in His purpose. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, it says this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. This is so often misquoted. God doesn't work things together for the good for everybody. As a matter of fact, for a great number of people, God works things together for their destruction. Because sin offends God and the wrath of God will judge that sin forever and ever and ever in torment. So God doesn't just make everything work out for everybody, for everyone's favor. He will do that only for those who have bowed a repentant knee in faith and love Christ in sincere obedience. So we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. I'm going to stop right here. Okay? Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. For what purpose? For the purpose of being conformed, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. God's purpose in calling us to salvation was to bring it through to its end, according to the Scripture. Did you hear that? God's purpose in calling us, God's purpose in saving us, was to accomplish that through to its end. And we know this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we see the word He repeated over and over again. That tells me that it is God that's responsible to save me, not me. God is the one that begins and ends salvation in my life. He accomplishes it. And what a liberating thought to know that my salvation is brought upon me with divine power and that there's nothing that I can do to resist it or to cause it to not happen. I believe that very fundamentally in Scripture. And notice also number two, secondly, that these are all past tense verbs. Now that all makes sense up until the last one. Okay? Alright, predestined, yeah, sure. You know, in, in the annals of time and eternity past, God did something. Okay. He called me. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That was in the past. You know, we're looking backwards if you're already safe. Um, he, um, he predestined me. He justified me. Okay, yeah, like the cross, that's what that did. But glorified? He glorified me. Well, hold on a second. None of us are... Who's glorified? Can you raise your hand? Who has a body like Christ and has risen from the dead? <laughs> None of us are glorified yet. But for some reason, Paul wants to make the point to establish the fact that your glorification is directly tied into the sovereign purpose of God saving you. So in other words, God didn't save you in order for Him to lose you. He saved you to finish it. To finish the deal. To accomplish the deal. So no sin or no enemy or no foe can steal the salvation that God has wrought in your heart. 
you are safe and secure under the sovereign care and power of God. And that is our next point. Reasons related to His power. Reasons we are secure related to His power. Now, to Him, there's that word again, to Him, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. God is able to keep us by His power. That able there is an indication of divine power in His ability to keep us from stumbling and to present us blamelessly before the presence of His glory with great joy. God's power is able to keep the believer saved. John chapter 10, um, verses 28 through 29. This was our text, text verse that we opened up with. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I don't know how you can end up not believing in eternal security after reading this passage. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I have a little toy alien right here. Okay? Um, it's a glow-in-the-dark thing, so those of you who might want to like look at it like this later. But I have a little toy alien. I'm going to pretend that this is me. Okay? This is me. And, and the alien's me and my hand is God's hand. Um, close, but not that close. Okay, so the Bible says here that I am in the hand of God. Now, you guys know that Kung Fu movie? When you are able to snatch this pebble from my hand, then you can leave. What was, that? was that Kung Fu? You guys don't even know what I'm talking about? Whatever. I, I almost tried to get a video to show, but I was like, forget it. That's silly. Um, so the Bible says here that we are in the hand of God. And no one is able to snatch us out of, the, out of the Father's hand, okay? So here, here's the Father's hand, and this little alien's me. I'm inside the Father's hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, will, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So who's not able? No one. No one's able, okay? Now remember that word, no one. No one is able. Some people argue, when they read this passage of Scripture, that the believer can be snatched out of the Father's hand if the person renounces their faith. Okay? In other words, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand except themselves. You follow me? So in other words, if you have faith and you're in the Father's hand and then you renounce your faith, that can happen, right? There, my, there I am out of the Father's hand. But no outside force can take me out of the Father's hand. Right? So Satan or people or something like this. And this is based on many verses that we see in the New Testament that connect salvation with the endurance of the faith. Okay, now let me just read a couple of these to you. Matthew 10, 22, He who endures to the end will be saved. So an, Armi uh, an Arminian thinker would explain, well, what that means is that the, in order to keep your salvation, your faith needs to endure. And it's connected back to what I said before, that you're saved but that salvation rests on your endurance. So you can get saved and lose it. But a, Cal uh, a Calvinist would say, once you get saved, um, you can't lose it. It's impossible for you, you to lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. It's a sign that you never had it. Um, like, the, 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 like the demons in James. Okay? So Matthew 10, 22, He who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3, 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. So in other words, you're saved, but if you, for some reason something happens and you don't hold fast, then you lose your salvation. That's how, that's how some people read these passages. Colossians 1, 22-23, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and, ab- and, ab- and above reproach before Him, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Again, these verses are used to point out the fact that God will present us, God will present us um, to, Jesus will present us to the Father as holy if we endure in the faith. So the, the conclusion for some people is that you can get saved, but if you lose your faith, you can lose your salvation. All right? Now this is an important verse, and I think this verse explains everything. First John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. Why did they go out? Come on, people. Yes. They went out from us because they were not of us. The point is, they never were of us. They went out. The the loss of faith in their life, according to John, is telling us that their faith never saved them because it wasn't a complete, genuine faith. It was a faith in something, but it wasn't a faith in the Gospel. And they tricked us, but they didn't trick God. 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, now listen to the rest of this verse, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, your faith endures if you're really saved. Your faith endures if you're really saved. They went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. There are people in this room who are posing, who are faking a faith to fit in, friends, whatever. Maybe you have faith in something. You say, that's not me. I have faith in God. Well, James, the book of James, the demons believe. They have faith and they tremble in hell. You may have a faith, but you have to have gospel faith to be saved. I can have faith that Jesus is a snail. But He's not a snail. That's not saving faith. That's not the kind of faith that saves. So we have to make sure that, that our faith is a scriptural faith and it's based on Scripture and then it's actually saved. So the Arminians interpret John chapter 10 objectively. So we go back to John chapter 10 and they say, no one will snatch me out of the Father's hand. So they say, that's objective. In other words, people outside of the Father's hand can't snatch us out of the Father's hand, but I'm inside the Father's hand and I can crawl out, okay? If I decide not to believe. The subject can. You can't take away my salvation, but I can if I abandon the faith. Problem, remember that word, what word did I tell you to remember? No one. Yeah, very good. You guys, are, you guys are with me tonight. Very good. The passage says no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Now, I'm no rocket scientist or super genius, but I'm someone. Right? So if no one, if I'm in the Father's hand and no one can take me out of the Father's hand, that includes me because I'm a person. Okay? There is no exception clause in this passage. There is no, nothing that says no one can snatch you on the, out of the Father's hand except for you, of course. It doesn't say that. Scripture tells us that nobody can take us out of the Father's hand. So no one, um, 1 John 2, 19 makes it clear. Um, <clears throat> it, oh, excuse me. So these verses should indicate that the individual who abandons the faith never had faith to begin with. So in 1 John 2, 19, um, this makes it clear that when it says they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 1 John 2.19 makes it abundantly clear that if a person defects and abandons the faith, 
then they never had salvation. Now, there are some exceptions, and some people say, exceptions, what? Just hold on. Uh, let me get to the end. Some people, I flail a lot more when I preach to the kids for some reason. I think it's because I don't think they're paying attention. So, like, if you see me preaching at, at youth group, I'll be, like, you know, waving around. And so I get a little bit more energetic, and some of them tease me for it. But, oh, well. Okay. Reasons related to the Son. We are secure also for reasons related to the Son. That is his death, resurrection, intercession, and advocacy. Because of the death, resurrection, intercession, and present advocacy with the Father in heaven, we are secure in our salvation. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, Paul says? What's the implied answer to that question? No one. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus. Now, here's Paul's answer for why no one can condemn us. Christ Jesus died, is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, and he's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, continually interceding for us in our behalf. So that when we sin in 1 John 2, 1, we have an advocate, Christ, in heaven um, declaring us holy and righteous. Make sense? So the present intercession of Christ in our behalf in heaven secures our salvation even when we do fail. Even when we um, sin occasionally in our lives and we, we all fall short from time to time. Amen? So, so sin in our lives shouldn't rob us of our assurance of salvation. What should rob us of assurance of salvation is the lack of guilt and conviction when sin is present. When, in other words, we continue on in sin after salvation, no changes happens at all in our lives. That's when we should lose our assurance of salvation, and that's when we should be very, very concerned about our eternal destination. If you say, I believed, I raised my hand, I went forward, I'm saved and going to heaven, glug, 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 having sex with my girlfriend and boyfriend, whatever, you continue without any conviction in your life in that, in that direction, that's not the kind of salvation that God produces in our hearts. Now, the other end of it is we're going to, even as Christians, as growing Christians, sin. It's for that person that I say, don't lose your assurance of salvation because you're human, because you fail, that there's a struggle of the sin nature in the spirit that will exist for everybody. So we should rest in the finished work of God when that sin, finished work of Christ when that sin does come up. But anyway, um, reasons related to the Son, His death, resurrection, intercession, and advocacy. Paul asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will condemn them? His answer implied is that nobody can do this. And this is based in the death, resurrection, intercession, and advocacy of Christ. We are kept by the work of Christ, not our own. Now, Christ's work produces a work in us, but we are not kept because of that work. Okay? We are kept because of the work of Christ. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, as believers, if we do sin, his advocacy keeps us saved in 1 John 2.1. Okay? Also, his power. <clears throat> Reasons related to the Son and His power. 
John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's that verse again. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. John chapter 6, listen to this incredibly important verse. These verses say that, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. It doesn't say accept this or accept that. It's saying that if you get saved, you are saved indeed. And that salvation will be completed by the glorious and magnificent power of God. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Isn't that interesting? All that the Father gives me will come to me. So if God has given the Son people... To be saved, they will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do of the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Now listen, this is God's will for Christ. That I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So when you get saved, God completes that. You are given possess you are in the possession of Christ, and it's Christ's job. Now listen to this. It's Christ's job to present you saved in the end. To complete that work of salvation in your life. Okay? Now, let's get into some reasons related to the Holy Spirit. There are a few different things here, but I want to concentrate some of our time tonight on his sealing ministry. Not sealing, like the above your head. So we've seen reasons related to the Father, reasons related to the Son, and now we're looking at reasons related to the Holy Spirit. Now these are very, very important verses that can really add, I think, a lot of of helpful insight to this discussion. It's a very important verse. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, to the day of redemption. If we are not eternally secure, we are not sealed until the day of redemption. Now follow this. But we are sealed until the day of apostasy. You hear me? If we can lose our salvation, then there's something that can take that sealing away from us. And it's apostasy. But according to this verse, that, that feeling stays present with us until redemption. As a matter of fact, the word there is implying that sealed for, that word for, the day of redemption, in Greek is ace, E-I-S in English. It's, it's moving towards a destination. That's what the word means. So we are sealed to move towards a destination. And that destination is redemption. So when the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches that when we get saved, quote-unquote, when we believe and put saving faith in Christ, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And the reason we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of God is because in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, this is a proof, a guarantee, it says in, in Scripture. The sealing is a guarantee of our inheritance. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in Him, 
We're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So in other words, God says, okay, I'm going to give you something to show you that you will be saved and that nothing can take that away from you and it's my Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is God's promise to us that He will bring us to salvation in the end and that it can't be lost. What an amazing principle that we see here in Scripture. So the Holy Spirit is our ceiling, um, is our guarantee that salvation will be complete in the end. Now let me just go over a, a few different things here. Um, so we've gone over the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we're also secure. I want to go over a very simple point. The nature of our salvation should indicate to us that our salvation is secure. And what I mean by that is that salvation is a gift. It's the free gift of God in Christ, Romans chapter 5, verse 15. It's non-meritorious, not of works of righteousness, which anyone should boast in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. If salvation is free and non-meritorious, not of works, then why would our works take it away? It doesn't make sense. If it's a free and non-meritorious gift, then why would I believe that some sin that I do tomorrow could erase the free gift? Then you say, well, all right, this, again, we're going back to the struggle, this tension, so why don't we just continue in sin? And I hope that I made that point clear why we wouldn't do that. <clears throat> and also, reasons related to our new, new nature in Christ, finally. Our new nature in Christ is that in 1 John 3, 1, among other, many other things, our nature in Christ is, is that we are sons of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. When we become saved, we are in the adopted family of God. We become sons of God. Being a son is unalterable. Whether we like it or not, we have the dad that we have, right? He is our dad, through thick and thin. Either a good dad or a bad. I have a great dad. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But when we become a son, when we are a son, that sonship identifies a new nature in us, and that nature should point us to the fact that we are secure in Christ. In Christ, we are sons of God. Being a son is unalterable. As much as some, uh, excuse me, if we, are, if we are sons of God, so we shall ever be. Okay. Now, I wanted to establish for you the point tonight that your salvation is secure in Christ that it is not hanging on a flimsy piece of dental floss that can be lost at any whim, and that God doesn't change. <clears throat> now, I want to ask, what gives us genuine assurance that we have actually entered into this salvation life? Because like I said before, there are people who think they're saved. Some can have a false assurance of salvation. They think they're saved, but they are not. Now, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 says this, On that day, many will say to me, listen to these sobering words, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out many demons? But he will say, Depart from me, worker of iniquity, I never knew you. We can have a false assurance. These disguise themselves as servants of righteousness in 2 Corinthians 11:26. They are branches that bear no fruit and are cut off thrown into the fire in John chapter 15, verse, verses 1 through 7. They think they're saved, but they're not saved. How do we know that we are not these people? How do we know that the salvation 
that we claim to have. We're talking about the security of salvation, but how do we know that we have it to begin with? You see, before you can believe in security, before you can rest in the security of your salvation, you first have to rest in the fact of your salvation. You follow me? Before you can rest in the security of your salvation, you have to first rest in the reality that salvation has ever happened to begin with. And that's what's critical to understand. Because security, for some, can lead to this false understanding that you can get saved and live like hell, and because you're secure, it doesn't matter, and you'll go to heaven when you die. And that's not what the Bible says about assurance. So what gives us genuine assurance that I am saved and that my salvation is secure? First, this is a question that you must ask yourself. Do I have present trust in Christ for salvation? Do I have present trust in Christ for salvation? In other words, do I have faith presently in the work of Christ as a payment for my sin? Do I believe that? Some think, like I said before, that they have faith, but a month later they become a Buddhist or something. These more than likely um, never had faith. They may have thought that they did, but it was either faith in the wrong thing or it was not genuine. You see? It was an incomplete faith or a disingenuine faith. Matthew 10.22 again, He who endures to the end will be saved. Now let me clarify something. because This is important. This doesn't mean that you'll never have times of doubt in your Christianity. John the Baptist had times of doubt in his faith. Okay? <clears throat> in, this, in these times of doubt in 2 Timothy 2.13, we have to remember that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. It also doesn't mean, by the way, that you won't experience superficial denial of Christ, like Peter. And what I mean by that is there are occasions in our life where we say with our lips we deny Christ, but in our heart we don't. We know He's real and we believe Him. Okay? But only we can know that process. And this is exactly what happened to the Apostle Peter. Peter didn't deny Christ in his heart. He denied Christ superficially. And he repented of it later because he was grief-stricken over it. You see, these are these indicators for us to show us if our denial is a superficial or actual denial. If we deny Christ, then we don't care. There's no grief. There's no sorrow. There's no tears. There's no change later on in our life. That shows me that that's an, a genuine denial of your faith and that, that faith never was sincere to begin with. But a superficial denial can occur in your life from time to time. <clears throat> Just like the Apostle Peter. This denial, as I said, refers to, um, this denial refers to a true denial, both in heart and action. Judas' denial was a true denial. He denied Christ in his heart and in his actions. Okay? So the first thing that we've got to ask ourselves, just to remind you, do I have, um, I think I even have a slide for this. Okay, there we go. Do I have present trust in Christ for salvation? Secondly, is there evidence of regenerating, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? Is there an evidence of regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit in Romans 8, chapter, 5, chapter 8, verses 15 through 16, bears witness with our, with our hearts that we belong to Him. The Holy Spirit bears witness to our hearts that we belong to Him. Also, He produces fruit in our lives, Galatians chapter 5. He produces fruit in our lives. 
if you claim, um, if you profess faith in Christ, but it is, it is not proceeded with any change at all in your life, if there is no fruit, then that shows me that the Holy Spirit's present is not, presence is not in you. And it should show you the same thing. Okay? Is there evidence of regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? Also, He will produce a life of obedience. First John 2, verses 4 through 6. Now, I have to say again, this doesn't mean that the believer will not experience sinful behavior. The believer, believers will experience sinful behavior. It, <clears throat> but, that behavior is always accompanied by grief over the sin and conviction and the discipline of God. Though people around might not see that discipline or conviction. So, in other words, believers can sin, but believers don't enter into a lifestyle of sin that is disconnected with any amount of conviction about the sin. I've I've entered into sin in my life as a believer. And when I did it, I knew it. And I grieved. And nine times out of ten at night, I was weeping over it. And finally, I got out of it and I stopped doing it. So that shows me, like, when I went through that time in my life, I personally believed that I needed to rest in the the assurance of my salvation because of what the Holy Spirit was doing in my life. But if if there was a lack of conviction and no change in my life at all, then I, I should have questioned the reality of my salvation, if it was ever there to begin with. You see, sometimes we have to go through these things in our own minds and evaluate our lives. Okay? Do I see, finally, um, continual growth in my Christian life? Second Peter 1, 5-10 says that Peter says here that we make our election sure by observing the Holy Spirit's prompting us to add to our lives knowledge, faith, virtue, self-control, and godliness. We make our election. In other words, we know we are in Christ because of what salvation has produced in us. And if, it's produ- and if we claim that we're saved and that has produced nothing in our lives, we should, we should question whether or not we're actually saved. Do I see continual growth in my Christian life? Now, I am out of time. People often lack assurance. And so let me just close with this. Because of a lack of understanding of this great doctrine of perseverance. We question our salvation from time to time. Or we have a false assurance because of this issue of perseverance. They misapply two unbiblical extremes. The first extreme I'm saved. I always will be, so I'm doing what I want. See you guys later. Eternal security. Woohoo! Right? Perseverance doesn't teach this. This fails to understand that those who God saves, He sanctifies. In Philippians 1 6, He completes this good work until the day of redemption. Sin convicts the real believer. Okay? Now, the second extreme is this the insecure believer. I struggle with sin. Maybe I never got saved. Oh, man, I stubbed my toe and I said, I swear. Maybe I lost my salvation today. Everything that you do makes you feel like you lost your salvation. You have no assurance. You're always losing your assurance because you're constantly looking inward at your own human frailty and your failures. Okay? I fail every day. If I looked at my sin every day, I would have to conclude, based on this extreme, that I'm not saved. Okay? 
This fails to recognize the struggle that all believers continue with in life with their flesh and their spirit. You have a flesh. You always will. There's always going to be a struggle with sin. But the key word here is struggle. If there is no struggle, why would you think you're saved? If you're getting a divorce and you could care less, why would you think that salvation life has occurred in you? If you're having free sex all the time and you claim to be a child of God and going to heaven and there's no conviction of it in your life, why would you think for a moment that God has saved you? You fail to recognize that when God saves, He also sanctifies. But if, if I struggle with sin, this idea though, however, that um, maybe I was never saved, this extreme, it fails to recognize the struggle that believers have with the flesh and the spirit. And this kind of person, the person that always thinks everything they do makes them, um, makes them question whether or not they were ever saved, they need, to re- they need to rest in the finished work of Christ. They need to recognize that the flesh and the spirit war against each other, and they always will, and they need to believe in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, that the, the righteousness that He provides through His death of the cross is sufficient to keep us saved. Okay? So we want to avoid both of these extremes where we're always wondering if we ever saved because every little sin that we do, or we think, we never wonder if we're not saved no matter how we live. There's this tension that we see in Scripture, and I don't think that it's a tension that we should be afraid of. The struggle should not rob our assurance, but the believers should rest assured that their salvation will be, will, will be brought through to its end by the power of an omnipotent hand of Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful tonight, Lord, that in John 10:27, your sheep hear your voice and they follow. God, we pray, Lord, that all of us would ask the question that upon my profession of faith and salvation have I followed Jesus because we know very clearly in scripture that when you call people to salvation you're calling them to a life of discipleship a life of following so God I pray tonight Lord that we would consider if we have ever even had the inclination to obey you or the desire to obey you and God if we haven't challenged this notion in our own minds that believe that we're saved and going to heaven with no fruit, no change of heart, no new life, no conviction, but we think we're going to heaven because we raised a hand or walked an aisle. God, let us turn from our sin to Christ for His complete forgiveness. And God, I pray also for the other believer out there who struggles with sin. And every other day thinks that they never got saved because there's a sin that they struggle with. Help us in 1 John chapter 2 to trust in the power of Christ to save, to keep us saved, and to be our advocate and intercede for us in heaven. God, we thank you for the finished work of Christ, that it's not anything that we have done to be saved, but it's all a gift accomplished from beginning to end by you that I pray, Lord, that this new life in Christ by this church would be lived faithfully, that we would follow radically, that we would give our hearts um, in complete surrender every single day in prayer and submission. 
God, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that does not know Christ that wants to turn from their sin and believe in the all-sufficient sacrifice made for them at the cross, I pray, Lord, that they um, would have this conviction to turn to Christ for forgiveness as Lord and Savior. God, we thank you again for all that you've done for us. Renew us, restore us, convict us, help us to grow leaps and bounds in our faith. We pray these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. Thank you so much, church, for your attention. I went a little long. I apologize. God bless you.